So we're in Ephesians talking about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his, the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Last week was the belt of truth. The belt of truth means we operate in the environment of truth. The truth of Scripture. Truth, the belt of truth lets us pull up the robes that would entangle us, and we live with freedom. We live with freedom because of the belt of truth. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who died a few years ago, the Russian novelist, said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. It is incredibly freeing to say, thus saith the Lord. God has spoken. So the belt of truth. And then he says, and take up the breastplate of righteousness. Now in the Christian armor, the breastplate in the day of Paul would, would be something from here all the way to here, front and back. And it would protect vital organs. And when we talk about the vital organs, we talk about the heart. We talk about what the Scripture calls the bowels of compassion or bowels of truth. So, so when I look at this, I think that it, it protects the emotions. It, it allows us to effectively combat the forces of darkness and to live with our emotions under the Lordship of Christ. See, the question is, how do you handle accusations against you? When Satan whispers against your character, against what you've done, how do you handle those accusations? How, how do you battle against the world and the flesh, your indwelling sin, and the accusations of the devil? On the best hour of our best day of this year, we are sinners in need of grace. I love what one of the old Puritans said, that, that even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ. So, so how do you handle these accusations? And the answer is because of the breastplate of righteousness, grace freely given or imputed to us, given. And this is incredibly important. Understanding this is incredibly important. In fact, if all of Christian doctrine were a dartboard, you know, that red dot in the middle, the middle of the red dot would be the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, unchanging, holy, pure, gloriously good. That's the inner, but right next to that would be the, this teaching. Justification by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. The question is, how can someone who is guilty, who is a sinner, like all of us, have a relationship with the God who is eternal and holy, holy, holy. How? And the answer is through the work of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. 
We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins or trespasses. The second question, how do people who are Christ followers who struggle and who don't do everything that we should do, how do we receive full forgiveness, right standing in God? The answer is Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. We have redemption, been purchased back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. See, when I was growing up, I went to a school in North Carolina, and every six weeks we got a report card. And for some people it was a day of rejoicing, for some people it was not. And the, the first part of my report card had reading, arithmetic, spelling, things like that, where you were graded with grades, with tests, and you got an A through an F. And then there was a second section, and it had uh, physical education, basically how to play on the playground, and citizenship. I did good in PE. I always did pretty good there. Citizenship, you, either you got an outstanding and in for needs improvement or you for unsatisfactory. Citizenship means he doesn't run in the hallway, doesn't fight in the boys' room, doesn't speak out of turning class. I didn't do good there. And, and invariably, I would get an N or maybe a U. And it was, it was bad. But you had this report card. And you'd go around and you'd say, look, I've been good. Look at what I've done. Look at me. Now, to me, that is a metaphor for life. So we are taught to run around saying, look at where I went to school, or look at my occupation, or look at where I live, or what I drive, or, or look at how my grandkids or my kids do. I'm a good guy. I deserve your applause. I deserve your affection. And there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of excellence. We should pursue excellence. But, but when, when that attitude crosses over into our understanding of who God is and our acceptance before him, it kills the gospel, it kills faith, and it destroys us. Because our basis of acceptance is only on the work of Christ. You see, every world religion, every one of them, says basically this. God, look at my report card. You've got to accept me. Look at what I've done. You've got to accept me. Look at what I've done for you. You've got to accept me. If, if you follow, or excuse me, if you ever study Islam, Islam basically says there is a, a scale in the heavens, and if you live to the honor of Allah, and you do the five pillars, and you do so forth and so on, when you die, your good deeds will probably outweigh your bad deeds, and you go to Islamic heaven. If you study Buddhism, for example, I was in Thailand several years ago and went to this Buddhist temple and was looking around. There was a, a book out front and it was entitled How to Understand Karma. It was in English and it was really written for novices like me, people who didn't know that much about, about Theravada Buddhism. And so it just talked about karma in very basic distinctions. And it said this, first front page has somebody that was kind of stooped over with a disease, and it says, if you are ill or have a deformed body in this life, it's because in a previous existence you did bad things. Therefore, in this existence, do good things, so in the next life, the transmigration of the soul, you'll come back with a whole body. A few pages later, if you are poor 
in this life. It's because you did bad things in a previous life. Therefore, do good things in this life so you'll come back and you'll have a livelihood where you can support yourself, so forth and so on. So it's all about your report card earns you. The Apostle Paul had the same mindset of a report card reporting Pharisee. The Pharisees were earnest people, but they were the purity party in Judaism. And they really believed that if they did A through Z, and they did it right, and they did it ostensibly so everyone can see, then they were on God's team. The Apostle Paul talks about this in one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Philippians chapter 3. And Paul says, I was born a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Just stop. He says, Paul said, if you could observe my life and the way I lived it out, there was nothing that you could ever say against me. There's nothing, no disparaging word. I was blameless. He says, in other words, I went around saying, look at my report card. I deserve your favor, God. And then he says this, but something happened to me as I was persecuting the church. I was on the road to Damascus and I met Jesus. Then I was taught the things of Christ. And he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as rubbish, as garbage, as a dung heap in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from law observance, my report card, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he breaks down this rhapsodic prayer, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to him at my death. And Paul's saying, that's who I am now. You see, world religions teach to a degree that right standing before God is gradually infused, important word, infused, gradually given, gradually, It can be stopped. It can be reversed based upon your efforts. The gospel teaches that your standing in God is imputed. Boom! It's given to you. When you trust Christ, you are completely forgiven, past, present, and future. When you trust Christ, the righteousness that is found only in Christ is given to you. It doesn't admit to degrees. It's once and for all. It is freely given, and it makes you want to sing and dance and shout. You don't run around with a report card saying, look at me, look at me. You run around saying, look at the cross. Look at the cross. And the thing that concerns me is that our hearts are spring-loaded to believe the report card. And I just ask, are you preaching the gospel to yourself?
Do you get it? See, John, this guy named John Wesley died in 1791 at the age of 88. John Wesley was born, and he was uh, the 15th of 19 children, born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Uh, they were our report card home. Do this, do that, do this, and you'll get, it, you'll get in. Even though he was an Anglican pastor, he didn't get the gospel. So Wesley grew up with this, do this, do this, do this. He went to Oxford. At age 17, he was there five years where he got his undergraduate and graduate degree at, God, at Oxford. Um, he started something called the Holy Club. It's a group of guys that were serious about pursuing the Christian faith. They would get up every morning and pray from 6 to 9 together. They would fast twice a week. Um, John Wesley, for years, kept a running record of every hour of every day and how he spent it. Amazing. So he gets out. He's in pastoral ministry for eight or ten years and decides he wants to be a missionary, so he goes to Georgia. This is 1736. He arrives in Georgia, goes to Savannah, has a horrible experience. Horrible. He basically has to flee Georgia because some people are out to get him. He left Charleston in 1738, went back to England, a dejected, despondent, depressed, defeated man. But on the way over, he met some group of people called the Moravians. They talked about faith in Christ. They talked about the cross, the sufficiency of the cross. And so he gets back, and he's in London, and somebody invites him to a Bible study at a place called Aldersgate. And if you're Methodist um, or study church history, on May the 24th, 1738, John Wesley goes to Aldersgate to a Bible study. And somebody sits there in the circle or whatever, and, and he opens a book, and it's the preface to, the, to a commentary on the book of Romans written by a man named Martin Luther, a former monk. And so this book talks about the free grace of Christ. It talks about the imputed righteousness freely given to us. It talks about the sufficiency of the cross and the cross only. And, just talk, and Wesley, here's Wesley's testimony. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. The word alone is important. It's essential. He said, I, I, I felt my heart strangely warmed because I trusted in Christ Christ alone for my salvation. See, Wesley got it. He's 35 years old. He got it. The breastplate of righteousness. The, the goodness of Christ. That's why I love the Shorter Catechism. Question 33 says, what is justification? And the answer is this. Justification is, is an act of God's free grace when he pardons and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We are righteous only because of who Christ is on the cross for us and is freely given to us. He not only pardons us, but he accepts us. And I think the Westminster Divines today would say pardons and embraces. So there's a difference between being merely forgiven and accepted or embraced. We're not only forgiven because of Christ, but we are adopted into the family of God. He pardons and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of Christ. So see, what do you do when Satan accuses you? 
What do you do when you get beat up? What, what happens when you feel forsaken? What happens when you feel discouraged? Where do you go? And I'm saying that the answer, scripturally speaking, is you go to the gospel. You take on the breastplate of righteousness. It's not your report card. It's the cross. Luther says this in his commentary. This is so good. This is the preface to the commentary in Galatians. It's about 80 pages, and it's worth his weight in gold. He says, therefore, this doctrine of salvation by faith alone, justification by faith, must be diligently taught and continually practiced. And, and whoever does not understand or apprehend this teaching in afflictions and tears of conscience must be overthrown. He says, you know, if you don't get this and you don't put this piece of the armor on and, and you go through difficulties and, and hard times and afflictions or the tears of conscience where you don't measure up, you're going to be overthrown. And then he says this, there is no comfort of conscience so firm and so sure as this imputed righteousness of Jesus for us. And he said earlier, as a, who, as a man who just came to faith, he said, when I understood this, I felt as if the doors of paradise had been thrown open for me. Story. There's a man, one of the, my favorite hymns, written by a man named Horatio Spafford. His story goes like this. He was a very wealthy attorney and real estate developer in Chicago in the 1870s. In 1871, the great Chicago fire burned most of Chicago to the ground, and Spafford lost the vast majority of his wealth. He was still wealthy, but he lost the vast majority. There's no insurance covering in those days. The same year of the Chicago fire, they had five children. Uh, his son, his four-year-old son, died of scarlet fever. And so in the context of all of this, about a year later, he sends his wife and four daughters to England on vacation. He says, we need a break. And he says, our friend D.L. Moody is leading a crusade in England, a great evangelist. Go out there and you join Mr. Moody. I'll wrap up things here, and I will join you and the girls later. So they go across the Atlantic Ocean, and the boat goes down. And all four girls, ages 11, 9, 5, and 2, drown. They drown. The wife lives. She goes to Ireland and sends him a telegram, two words, saved alone. I'm the only one that, was, that made it. So Spafford quickly gets to New York, gets on a, 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 a liner. He's going across the ocean. And on a particular night, the captain calls him to the bridge and he says, Mr. Spafford, I am well aware of your loss. And I want you to know, sir, that we are now going over the area where your four daughters are buried. And he goes back to his stateroom, and he writes this hymn. And it's powerful. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. He says, you know, when I have peace or sorrows. Now, now why can he say that? Keep on reading. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed 
his own blood for my soul. That's it. He said, I, I go to the cross. And then one of the greatest stanzas in him, in my opinion. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He said, it's, it's not just in part. It's not just kind of sort of infused or partially given. It is completely covered. So, so he says, yes, I'm grieving. Yes, I'm hurting. Yes, I'm troubled. But I'm trusting God because of the cross. I, I never, church, I never get tired of thinking through Matthew chapter or the Sermon on the Mount, but the closing of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And when the rains come down, and when the streams rise, and when the winds blow and beat against the house, it will stand strong. I promise you, winds will blow on us. Rains will descend on us. The waters will rise on us. We live in a fallen world. It is tough. But the promise is, if you build it on the rock, you'll stand. You'll stand. You'll stand. You don't hold up your report card, but you glory in the cross. The breastplate of righteousness. Now look at this quote. This is from Luther. I'm going to do this real quick. Luther says, This doctrine of justification by faith alone can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, then also the whole knowledge of truth, life, and salvation is lost and gone. And just stop there. Think about that. We've got to get this right. It's the article upon which the church stands or falls, said Calvin. And then he says this. Luther goes on and he says, If this doctrine flourishes, then all good things will flourish. And I just thought, what? You know, what? Flourish. That's such a good word. Grow, superabound. And I thought, how, how does this flourish? Well, just a couple of points. Number one, if, if this doctrine flourishes in my heart, it moves me to gratitude. And I become a true worshiper. And I cry out, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will not also, along with Jesus, give us all things? Romans 8, 32. I become a true worshiper. In Luke, there's a woman who's a prostitute, and she's bathing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping with her hair. And the Pharisees repulsed. And Jesus tells a little story. There's a money lender. One man owed him 50 bucks. Another guy owed him 50,000 bucks. He forgave both debts. Who loved him more? He said, well, the guy owed 50,000. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. He who has been forgiven little loves little. And we always, some people back up and say, well, does that mean you have to go to prison or do something horrible uh, to, 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 be, to really appreciate the gospel? No, it means you've got to know your heart. 
that every day I'm a debtor to grace. Every day I realize that, that I could have gone this way instead of that way and God's grace hemmed me in. Every day. A tragic funeral yesterday. A young woman I knew died of cancer and their marriage, her marriage fell apart with a guy I played football with years ago. And I, I just thought, you know, I could have done the same thing, but the grace of God arrested me. See that? It arrested me. God hemmed me in by his grace, showed me the cross. So, so when it comes to, my, to myself, flourishing as, as a person, I don't go around with a report card saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I go around saying, blessed be God. There's a gospel forgetfulness, self-forgetfulness that should descend in our lives. When it comes to other people, it makes us approachable and humble and teachable and easy to live with it's because it flourishes. It flourishes because there is security. I know whom I have believed, the Scripture says, and I'm convinced that he's able to keep what I've entrusted unto him against the day. I know how it ends, and Jesus wins. Quick story. My son for two years lived in China, the outback of China. And he was with a group called Pioneers Missions, and his team leader is one of the finest. He and his wife are two of the finest people I've ever met. They remain nameless for security purposes, but they went there and served with, he went there and served with them for two years. They had brought him into their family. When he wanted to do that, I said, I want you to be with this guy. This guy is so fine, godly. He and his wife both are wonderful. They adopted our son. And in the fall, they had this routine. See, they're 12 or 13 hours behind, depends on daylight savings time, where they live. And so a lot of the football games that they love to watch were a 2 o'clock kickoff or 1 o'clock or 3 o'clock, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning their time. So they would tape it and get together at 6 o'clock. Zach would be go around there and knock on their door. They'd have pancakes and sausage and eggs. And they'd sit and watch football for four hours and then go to worship service together. That's a great way to minister to a single man. And they had a, a, a great time except one weekend out of the month, out of the, out of the football season. You see, the, the, my son's supervisor loved and loves the Gamecocks. And my son went to the Citadel, and he likes the Gamecocks, but he loves the Tigers. And so they just had this ongoing dispute. And so in 2009, the second year my son was there, a new guy had come to town and was his roommate, and this new guy played football for Clemson. So they really had a vested interest. And they were all year this and back and forth, so on. So the, that, that game was 2009 was on November the 27th, I think it was, 2 o'clock kickoff, so he taped it. But 6 o'clock in the morning, knock on the door, come on, it's time to watch, the, time to watch Clemson. They didn't have the ability to, to see the game or tape it. And so they were there. It says, pancakes, sausage, eggs. They come in, they turn on the game. If you remember that year, that year, uh, opening kickoff, a young man named C.J. Spiller from Clemson ran it all the way back. Boom. Now, I, I asked the administrative assistant I work with, who's a Carolina graduate, to show a picture of C.J. on that touchdown run, that kickoff. And this is what she put up. That, that is not... That's getting gang tackled. She's a game coach. She could not bring herself to put up a slide showing the touchdown. But anyway, that's not what, 
But anyway, Spiller scored a touchdown, and these guys were up chest-thumping, high-fiving, and they looked at this um, career missionary who loves the Gamecocks, and he said, you know, I think C.J. Spiller may be the best running back in America. I said, yeah, 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 sure. So Caroline gets it, punts, Clemson gets it. They're driving in for what looks like a 14-0 lead. There's a fumble, and the game turned right there. And this guy, this missionary, this boss, says, oh, that's tough. Oh, man, that's a tough break. And my son goes, that's, what, what's going on? So the game unfolds, and Carolina ends up winning 34-17. to 17. And about halfway through the third quarter, my son looked at this guy, and he said, you watch this game. <laughs> he said, you're way too calm. You're not gloating. He said, okay, guys, i got to confess, I... I slept three hours and got up at 2 o'clock, and I watched it. And the Gamecocks rule, baby, you know. And so, I, so you, you sit back and you go, you know what? He could watch it because he knew the outcome. I know the outcome. I'm secure in Christ. Troubles will come. Hardships will come. But I stand on the rock. You know what? Jesus wins. You just keep going forward. That doesn't mean we don't hurt. That doesn't mean we don't grieve. This week I was reading about, I mean, praying about, thinking about North Korea. Read some books about prison camps in North Korea. 26 million people of the Hermit Kingdom. Christians are routinely brutalized, imprisoned, and murdered. It's horrible. An election two weeks ago, Kim Il-sung, whatever his name is, was the only one on the ballot. And amazingly, every adult who could vote, voted, and they all voted for him. Because they were picked up at their homes by guards, taken to the polls, and they watched them as they voted. It's a horrible system. Breaks my heart. I was thinking this week that 20 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. 20 years ago, right now, during this time of the year in 1994, in a small country called Rwanda, Population 10 million, 800,000 people were murdered, most with machetes, brutalized. How? Somebody said, what's the highlight of your week? It's easy. Thursday night, the Low Country Pregnancy Center Banquet. So well done. I just rejoice that there are people there taking the gospel out and sharing Christ and saving these precious little babies from the abortion mill. And I sat there and rejoiced, and I kept burying my head in my hand thinking, I rejoice in this, but there have been 56 to 57 million abortions in this country since 1973. And it grieves me. But in the midst of that, I say, God, your purposes are fixed and true, and I trust you. I'm going to go forward in faith and do the right thing and leave the consequences with you. And I rejoice, and I am glad that because of the breastplate of righteousness, because of the work of Christ in my life, I am secure in you, and I rejoice, and I sing. Walk that way. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we have the testimony of, of people who said that in, have said in, in the midst of trial and heartache, we stand on the rock. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would so energize us and so use us and so work in us 
that we understand that our standing with you is strictly the work of Christ and we are compelled to tell other people and to plead with them and to urge them to consider the reality of Christ. That we would not run around with a report card saying, look how good I am, but we would run around saying, look at the cross of Christ. That you would so work in us that we would worship you and we would practice a a gospel-centered self-forgetfulness as we rejoice in who you are. So bless us, Lord, I pray. Please do that in Jesus' name.